So this is a, a strange uh, liturgical holiday week in that the Ascension uh, happened on Thursday, and that was a day many of us were making dumb Spanglish jokes and drinking margaritas, because it also this year happened to be Cinco de Mayo. Um, and now today, the Ascension Sunday falls on Mother's Day, so I think it's some vast conspiracy against Ascension Day. For, and, sorry, this is a little bit of a side note. Cinco de Mayo, like, I, many of us think that that is Mexican Independence Day. That's not Mexican Independence Day. What is the ascension anyways, also? Uh, like, these are, you know. <laughs> what do these two holidays have in common? I think there's a lot of confusion around both. Cinco de Mayo is not Independence Day, Right? Independence Day happened about 40 years before that in Mexico, where they gained independence from Spain. Cinco de Mayo actually happened in 1862, where Mexico fought with France. And it wasn't to get independence. It was fighting imperialism, fighting foreign intervention, fighting occupation. Cinco de Mayo has been inflated to a way bigger deal probably in America, because you can sell it, than it is actually in Mexico. The biggest Cinco de Mayo... Festivities are in L.A., not Pueblo, Mexico, or Pueblo, Mexico. And if Cinco de Mayo has grown and morphed and mutated into this really overestimated and very misunderstood holiday, I think the Feast of the Ascension of Jesus into heaven is equally misunderstood and probably far more under-celebrated, right? One practical reason it's important for the church to know about and to celebrate the ascension is that simple psalm-like question that I often get from my four-year-old. If God is always with us, then where is he? No, like, where is he? Joking aside, I think you and I have probably asked or at least wanted to ask that very same question. Maybe when we're at the end of ourselves and we say, God, you're always with us, where are you? No, like, where are you? show up. I think some of the main misconceptions I have, which normally if we don't know what to do something, we just kind of ignore it. And so a a misconception is that most of what it means for Jesus to ascend into heaven means for him to blast off to some sort of outer space. And and, and once he's there, he's, he's no longer all that interested in us. And in turn, we are not all that interested in him. You couldn't be all that interested in the structures and systems down here below, let alone being ruling over them. But the ascension of Jesus not only locates the risen Jesus, who was slain on Calvary for our sin and in our place, he was powerfully raised by God's spirit and defeated death, it not only locates him, it not only places him, but it locates him at God the Father's right hand. Right where he came from and where he was going to return to. To intercede for us. To whisper our deepest needs and fears into his and our loving Father's ear. It also locates, it seats Jesus on the throne. Reigning in ruling, 
because the enemy of sin and death has been destroyed. This is the seventh week of Easter in which we say that over and over. He's risen, hallelujah, he's risen indeed. And this is true even when we look around in our lives or uh, even when we look within our lives and it feels like sin and death are winning. The ascension says that's not true. One theologian says, being a Christian has always been about living by faith in Jesus' sovereign lordship in a world which didn't much look like he was in charge. That was true in 5080, and that's true now. But on the cross, our freedom has been achieved. We've been set free, liberated from sin and death. But like, like Cinco de Mayo, this isn't exactly an Independence Day for us. Our freedom doesn't make us independent. It doesn't make us autonomous or finally able to go it alone. It, our liberation makes us more reliant on, more trusting in, more filled by God's spirit for a new life as God's people in this world. From the throne, Jesus rules, even over the powers and principalities who claim power, who, who use privilege in broken and sinful ways. He rules over even those strong institutions and those strong intangibles that hold us down. Despite all the evidence to the contrary, Christ is king. Rather than the occupying rebel forces, Jesus is not absent but all but overall. Not removed or disinterested, but intimately near to God. Intimately close to the Father on our behalf. And he brings us into his presence and he fills us with the Spirit so that we can be his presence. Today I want to think about this sort of enthronement by, by looking into a small passage in the letter of, uh, to the Ephesian church that my mom read. Last summer, we worked our way through Ephesians, and I, I preached the longest sermon in the history of Oak Church. You can look it up. We'll try not to match that today. But I preached that on this passage, and I didn't even talk about the ascension because I didn't know what to do with it. But that passage... And, and everything immediately prior to it, the emphasis is on unity now. The, it's the unity now made possible between opposed and even warring parties because of Jesus. Jews and Gentiles are nothing. Fractures don't now make sense. The dividing wall of hostility has been leveled. Peace is now the operative word. One is the magic number. All is the goal. One body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, one Father, over all, through all, in all. The letter then goes into this mini excursus on Psalm 68, 18. And it speaks of God being enthroned, being celebrated as king, bringing justice and peace 
defending the vulnerable, freeing prisoners, and bringing good news. God dwells on his holy mountain. Can you put up Psalm 68 there? You ascended the heights, leading away your captives, receiving tribute from people, even from those who rebel against the Lord God's dwelling there. Bless the Lord, the God of our salvation. He supports us day after day. Selah. Our God is the God of salvation, and escape from certain death comes through God my Lord. Some have commented that this is like Moses-type language here going up to the mountain to meet God, who rules and looms mysteriously but powerfully over his people, over the whole earth. We get the picture here that God is a God who knows all and sees all, who rules all, who holds it all together. He sees the long view, and and he requires appropriate worship under his reign. He doesn't need it, but, but that's the only suitable thing to do. Once God's righteous one ascends the heights, all might be set right. Psalm 68 even hints that a rebellious people will even offer tribute. They'll bow their knees, they'll voice with their tongues who the king truly is. Depending on which side you're on, this vision can either sound really hopeful or massively threatening, right? As people gather under the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who climbed up to the heights, I think it should be both for us. Massively threatening, extremely hopeful. You see, I don't think I'm alone, but I confess Jesus as Lord all day long, but so much of my life is lived to the contrary. I don't know, like, do a little inventory. For one, if you are completely derailed when someone thinks differently from you, if that is so threatening, like that might be a sign that you are lacking the confidence that Jesus is an active, present Lord. Or maybe like this current political cycle just has you totally drifting towards cynicism or despair. Maybe you have more eggs than you should in that basket on who's Lord and who rules. Maybe you anguish. You just you have clear enough eyes to see the amount of division and injustice around us, poverty and cruelty and discrimination. But maybe it sends you into despair instead of some sort of hopeful realism where you can see how things really are and hope for a better future. Maybe you've grown disillusioned with, with the way power and, and privilege works around you. Or maybe you've become paralyzed with your own power and privilege that you have, which you possess, not due to any of your own effort or work of your own. Maybe, maybe you swing from place to place or, or friend group to friend group or relationship to relationship or church to church. Like maybe your thing is like a serial monogamy, unable to commit unable to stick to it because doing so might mean trusting, might mean persevering, might mean not being in control. Or maybe you're domineering or looking for control over at least like your little kingdom. It's not much, but it's my kingdom, right? 
Maybe that causes you to treat coworkers or a spouse or your little kids or someone who would threaten you, your neighbors, a preceptor who might cross you. Maybe, maybe it might cause you to treat them awfully. I recently heard this sermon by um, Mark Laberton, and, and he, ta- he talks about this lady he knew, and he said she was the most controlling person uh, he'd ever met. Like she, She's a very dedicated Christian, always involved in everything, but if she was going to be involved, she wanted to lead it. She wanted to do it, and she wanted you to fall in line behind her. And She was up in years, and, and she, she wound up dying, and he attended her funeral, and, and there was a, uh, when they got the kind of order of service at her funeral, and there's the obituary, and, and the first line of the obituary says, Mary has gone to be the Lord. And, and, and like, you could, you could kind of look around and kind of see everyone kind of snicker because they kind of knew that was true about Mary, and they weren't sure if it was a typo or not. If any of these are true about you, you might just be living with a substitute king or a counterfeit lord. It might let on that you are at best one of those offering tribute to the Lord, even in rebellion. Perhaps you've never been one to call Jesus Lord, or you don't consider yourself a Christian. Or maybe we think of some of our closest friends and neighbors, for whom the call is the same as it is for us. Repent. The kingdom of God is at hand. It's at hand precisely because the risen and ascended Lord, Jesus, rules at the Father's right hand. The whole point for us when we gather together is to expect this sort of renewal, this sort of transformation, this sort of hope for healing, and coming to the one with authority and power and knowledge to offer all those things. The call is a call back. It's a call of repentance. It's a call for the spirit to soften our hearts and to fill us. It's a call for reconciliation. And ironically, it's a call for confidence. You see, most of the time when we're sinfully prideful or we're trying to control things, we turn away from God and we do our own thing when we try to seek any little bit of control because we feel out of control. We feel like control has been wrestled from us and that that control has, or that that control has been dispersed among other people and it's really threatening because we're not in charge anymore. So the call is a call back to the ascended Lord, to the crucified and resurrected Lord Jesus who sits powerfully at the throne of the Father and who's present in this world by his Spirit. By the way, that's a plug for us waiting for the Spirit next week as we celebrate Pentecost. It's this Lord who decenters our power and privilege and then recenters them on the one who possesses power and who graces us with gifts, with an inheritance that we actually can possess. It's here that the letter to the church at Ephesus remixes Psalm. 68, remixes it with an addition and an edit. Uh, you can go to that first 
point that we've already kind of made, that Jesus ascended. And then it remixes with an addition, and at first the addition that Jesus not only ascended to the heights, not only now enjoys his rightful place, but that he got there by descending to the depths. You can put that one up. Yeah, good. Ephesians says, what does the phrase he climbed up mean? It doesn't, mean, doesn't it mean that he first had to go down into the lower regions, into the earth? The one who went down is the same one who climbed up above all the heavens so that he might fill everything. I can't help but imagine that this little innovation, this little imaginative innovation in the text was meant to further kind of texture and contextualize that great psalm. That the Ephesians needed to remember, just like we need to remember what type of king we serve, because that changes everything. And it's one thing to know that you serve a king, but it's a whole other thing to know what type of king. When we fall at the feet of Jesus and we worship him as king, we fall at feet that are nail-scarred, is what this reminds us. I think of like in Revelation 5, when we look to the throne, we're shocked to see that the nations are worshiping, not some regal king, not some roaring lion, but a slaughtered lamb. The nations revere him in song. Worthy is the lamb who is slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Our lives are focused on this one who is wounded for our transgressions. Unless we get too excited about following some king whose prestige and power might rub off on us, we got to remember that following this king means getting splinters from shouldering a cross. <laughs> that finding our lives might mean losing them. That forming strong, healthy, godly relationships in which we grow in Christ together is going to require honesty. It's going to require vulnerability. It's going to require risk, opening yourself up to someone who might hurt you. It's going to require you to stick around even though things aren't the way you thought they would be. It means emptying yourself emptying yourself of preferences and opinions, even maybe even in, emptying yourself of things you wholeheartedly think are the best things about yourself for the sake of finding them, for the sake of finding them anew in Christ and holding them with the appropriate looseness. This is all possible because Christ has shown us the way. He's the tour guide in this treacherous and risky route that leads through the cross. It leads deep into the depths of despair. And then it relies, this is like the riskiest thing in the world, it relies on the spirit to do the most impossible, most unthinkable, never-before-done work of resurrection and bringing us in a newness of life. That's how we're saved by that kind of grace, that's the whole shape of our new life in Christ. I came across this quote from C.S. Lewis's Miracles, in which he 
he tries to get at this, this picture with the image of a diver. One has the, the picture of a diver stripping off garment after garment, making himself naked and then flashing for a moment in the air and then down through the green and warm and sunlit water into the pitch black, cold, freezing water, down into the mud and slime, and then up again, his lungs almost bursting, back again into the green and warm and sunlit water and then at last out into the sunshine, holding in his hand the dripping thing he went down to get. The thing is human nature, but associated with it, all nature, the new universe. Jesus isn't just our tour guide. We're actually joined to him in this dive, in this descent. We're made alive with him. That's why the way, the, the rite of initiation when you become a Christian is baptism. That's this this powerful, tangible picture of this, a watery grave that you're laid down in, you're essentially, that's risky too, because you you could be drowned in this process, right? What kind of initiation is this? And then you're raised to new life. That's why some Christian traditions cross themselves with water every time they gather to worship, to remember a physical reminder of what that grave felt like and how we're now marked with the cross-shaped death and this spirit-filled life. What would it mean for our, for our whole church to, to share this posture, this cross-shape, as we work and as we minister in the neighborhood and our families and our jobs, that we might witness to this ascended, powerful Lord Jesus through our vulnerability, through our willingness to lay aside our own preferences for the sake of others, for our willingness to die in big and small ways, our willingness to follow Jesus into the depths, into the depths of others' pain and sin and hurt and fear. How would, all this, how would all this affect something just even as basic as who, who you sit with on a weekly basis at Potluck to lay aside your preferences and to always be looking for someone? How would that enable us to deepen our commitment to each other, to grow relationships in Christ built around vulnerability and sacrifice? The sacrifice sometimes of being hospitable, of inviting someone in and making them dinner, or going to them. Like, how would this, how would this revolutionize? Like, if, like, I, I look at the groups of this church and we, and we have, like, uh, like, mostly single students and mostly young families. Like, how would it revolutionize if, if the, if the, Families are feeding the students, and the students are babysitting for the families, and that is not begging. That has happened. That has happened, and it is glorious. It's amazing. But it can be done in a way that that witnesses, too, and evidences this self-giving, this emptying. What if we went in this neighborhood, we go to the sick and the sorrowing, just or the elderly, just to sit, just to pray, just to share life? And what if we brought a friend with us? What if that's part of this? 
And finally, in, in Ephesians, there's this edit of Psalm 68. This edit, it mentions that people praise the ascended Lord by bringing him gifts to honor him. That's what Psalm 68 says. But Ephesians says this thing, and it says that the risen and ascended king is the one who gives gifts. What sort of king does this? What sort of king is not threatened or slighted? Like I think of all of like the fairy tales or like the archetypes of the king, and it's and it, like I'm thinking, I'm always thinking of Robin Hood, and and I might as well just say it. But the king is always the the tax hungry uh, tyrant, right? And instead, we find this king. And, and, and that might even be a way to read Psalm 68, that this king is getting gifts even from people who don't really want to give them. But then Ephesians flips it and says, this ascended risen king is the one giving gifts. It's the sort of king who doesn't need anything. He doesn't need our gifts. He'll accept our gifts. He'll accept our whole lives. But he doesn't need anything. He doesn't need our worship. He doesn't need our gifts to fill his coffers. He's, he's made it all. He gives it all. He's the, ultimately the, the source. He's secure. He's plenteous. He's capacious. He created all things. All things belong to him. All things are given and received from and to him. Jesus gives gifts out of the overflow of God's grace. What if one of the most public and continuous ways that we honor and recognize Jesus' power and reign is by being thankful and generous people, people who know about gifts, who see the whole world as a gift? If we're a people for whom it's obvious to anyone looking in on the outside that we operate with a different sense of time because we're not running around hurried because we know that there's enough. We're unhurried because there's more than enough. Or a different sense of need because when you're expecting grace, you often find more than you ever thought was possible. It makes us content. It makes us creative. It makes us generous. It makes you more than enough. Do you know that today? Like, if you're tired, if you're wore out, if you're, like, feeling horrible about yourself, like, you, because of Christ, you today have and are more than enough. Like, that is revolutionary. What if we had a different sense of what it takes to flourish as a community and, and into the wider neighborhood? Because the gifts that this letter of Ephesians are talking about are all people gifts. Like, like they talk about being property poor and cash poor, but the church is always people rich, right? Like that is, that, those are the gifts we're given. We're given apostles, those who are sent to places where the good news is better than anyone ever thought, and they bring others with them. They go. We have prophets, Prophets live with a sort of holy discontent that bugs them deep in their bones until truth and justice and faithfulness 
are not only talked about, but are evidence in everyday lived realities in God's people. We're given evangelists. These evangelists are like the master chefs in our midst who have tasted and seen the goodness of the Lord and who can't help but invite others to the feast. They create hospitable places. There's always another set place at the table. And then they help people articulate what that tastes like. They, they enliven dead taste buds so that they can savor for the first time. We're given shepherds who guide and gather, who anticipate needs and bind up wounds. They guard others from harm and hurt. And we're given teachers, teachers who open the scripture, who open up the world, open up imaginations, open us up to growing the mind of Christ in community together, a spirit renewed and transformed curriculum of Christ's likeness in our midst. We're given these gifts for a goal, for a goal of becoming mature adults, to be fully grown, measured in the standard of the fullness of Christ. And it is beautiful and messy and sometimes frustrating that the way God might conceive of ruling and being generous to us would be to give us people. <laughs> to make us need each other, right? Like, that's like one of, one of those gifts that doesn't really keep on giving, right? Like, like, you get frustrated when you unwrap it and you're like, do you know how many batteries this is going to take for me to use this? <laughs> that somehow with all, without all of these components... And, and even more, I, I think there's probably even more gifts given to us than is even listed. Without all of those in Christ's body, we're lopsided. We'll have a hard time achieving the goal of becoming mature. Without, without a prophetic or an apostolic voice who's allowed to grow and develop and voice that voice, we all might be a little immature. We might have that we might have to evidence the trust we have that Christ is over all and in all and fills all by trusting each other enough not only to give our gifts. I know that's, that's really hard for introverts to like give their gifts. But also to receive those gifts. It's really hard for extroverts to shut up long enough to realize that the introverts have a lot of gifts to give. And even those gifts that are still in process or those gifts that we don't really know how to appreciate or use, or those who aren't even recognized by those who possess them. We might get to tell someone about their gift that they're giving everyone. I'm really excited for this next season in Oak Church because we're in the process of assembling a steering group put together from your nominations. I'm excited because I can start to see how some of these gifts will fit together. But I'm also know that there's going to be this strange, graceful alchemy that happens with gifts that we never knew about or how gifts interact with each other. I'm really excited for that. I want to close with a song from Philippians 2, 1 through 11. As I was going through all this and ma mashing up the, the, uh, 
the psalm and Ephesians 4 with the holiday and the feast day of the ascension. I think Philippians 2 wonderfully sums up this parabolic shape of all this. Christ's ascent, his descent, and also the graceful thread of reliance and worship and the dynamic spiritual life we're called into under this risen and ascended gift-giving King Jesus. Philippians 2. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any incentive of love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection or sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfishness or conceit, but in humility count others better than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as something to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, in every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. And pray with me. Father, we're humbled, we're staggered by this vision. This vision that you might descend not only to us, but below us into the depths, that you might drink death to the dregs, that you might ascend to the throne and rule and reign. Lord, help us anticipate participate in that reign now. Anticipate when that reign will be recognized and fulfilled. Lord, let us be good gift givers and good gift receivers because we're operating in this in this ecosystem of grace where it's just all around us. Give us eyes and ears to to see and hear and perceive and imagine these gifts. Give us stamina and imagination to to develop these gifts and to offer them. Lord, I thank you for this this place, this church, this surrounding community where these gifts might be manifest for the building up of your church, for growing us in maturity, and for being your church in this world. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.